Hey guys, welcome back to this week's episode of the American Landman. I'm your host, Neil Hogger, land specialist with Whitetail Properties Real Estate, coming to you from the American Landman studios here in Western Wisconsin. Well, I have to apologize. Last week I was on vacation and for my regular listeners, I did not get an episode out. That's because I took my family on our annual fishing trip to Hayward, Wisconsin, and I tried to get an episode out before I left, but you know how it is, packing the boat and the truck and getting everything going. I just, I just ran out of time. So if you're a listener, I apologize for not getting an episode out, but that's what happens. Sometimes life happens. Um, the good thing is, though, I'm probably going to uh, have an episode about this, but I bought a cabin. I bought a cabin on the uh, Lake Chippewa, or uh, the Chippewa Flowage, as they call it. And I've been looking on this lake forever. I'm talking decades. I came there first time ever in 1965. I think I was uh, 10 months old. So I just dated myself and uh, came to this uh, this body of water, which is a uh, it's called a flowage. And what that means is back in the early 20s, almost 100 years ago in 20, 1923, I think it was. So it was 100 years ago. They dammed up the Chippewa River and it started to flood and they created a big impoundment that would hold back water. And then they would had a generator at the at the uh, dam and they would generate electricity for the towns downstream of the of the river, uh, namely Eau Claire. And after World War One, with all the guys coming back and, and you know the spur and industry and whatnot, they needed electricity. So that's what was the history of the Chippewa flowage. And um, there's also some negative history there because there were a lot of Native Americans that lived uh, under what is now uh, 90 feet of water and they were flooded out of their homes and moved to higher water. That maybe will be another story uh, later on when I kind of highlight the process of me buying this property. So we put in an offer and it was a lot of back and forth, a lot of handicap because where I was, it was not good uh, internet service. And believe it or not, I haven't spoke to the agent once live the whole time. He didn't want to talk to me for whatever reason, but we got it done and uh, we bought a cabin. So in about 30 days, we'll be the proud owner of a lakeside cabin on the Chippewa Flowage. But uh, that's not what we're going to talk about today. I am bringing in a new guest here with a topic that I personally have not heard anywhere on a podcast anywhere. So this is the first time ever. First time ever you're having a topic about pond and lake construction. I'm bringing in Brian Greb and his wife, Katie, own a business called Blue Wing Outdoors. And they are fisheries biologists and they can build you a pond. And I don't know about you, but that is something that I've always wanted. Having a pond that I have a nice dock, I can go out and catch some bluegills and some bass. Uh, as a kid, I know for sure that is something I always wanted. And I, I, I've never achieved it. Don't know if I ever will, but um, I thought, you know, I can't be the only guy out there that has this dream. So we're going to bring Brian in and we're going to talk about what's it take to build a pond, like the process. We're going to talk about stocking it. We're going to talk about habitat. And we're even going to get into cost. I try to nail Brian down, I'm sure, give me some real numbers on what it costs to build a pond or lake of your dream. But before we do, as we always do, we got to take a moment out for our sponsors. I hope you guys are uh, frequenting these folks. They have some great products. They're sponsors of the show. And we'll hear a word from them, and then we'll get right back. I'm Neil Hogger, and I'm a land specialist with Whitetail Properties Real Estate, and this is the American Landman Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Vitalize Seed. Cycle nutrients the way nature intended. The Packer Max HD Culta Packer Crimper. 100% of your seed goes down, 100% of your seed comes up. Landgate, data, intelligence, and marketplace for land and its resources. First Products Grain Drills, maker of the multi-drill. Quality, precision, durability. And lastly, acres.com. Explore and value land with confidence. And now, back to the show. And welcome to the show, Brian Greb. Brian. Welcome to the American Landman podcast. So the listeners, they don't know what just happened, but we uh, we recorded about 20 minutes of the conversation and then something happened to my equipment. It went absolutely dead. So I'm going to let them know that that's what happened. That's the joys of podcasting, but I we're going to try this again. So welcome to the show. <laughs> well, it's good to be here, Neil. I think this show is kind of a bad luck <laughs> trying to make, prevent this from happening, but we'll, we'll get through it. We're doing well. Yeah, I know. We, well, I tried to get you on here last week and I was leaving on vacation. So I did not have an episode last week and you were supposed to be it. And now we're back and I'm back on the first day back and now we're working out the kinks. But the good thing is, is now you're a little bit more comfortable because we talked for 20 minutes without the system working. So don't know what happened on that, but 
Oh, well. So for the listeners, I want to welcome the show again. Hey, I got a great discussion here that I'm going to set up because if, if you're like me, any guy that owns land or wants to own land pictures a pond. I mean, who doesn't? Going out into your own land, having a pond, casting line, catching trout or bluegills or whatever it's stocked with. And so I know that's always been a dream of mine. And I brought on Brian because that's what he does. He actually has a business building ponds and managing uh, the water for your enjoyment, for the biology and whatnot. And he's also a land specialist with Whitetail Properties Real Estate. So we're going to bring him in here, or we already have, and we're going to talk to him about it. So Brian, why don't you t- introduce yourself and tell us about who you are, where you live, and uh, we'll take it from there. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm Brian Graham. I'm in I'm in Northeast South Dakota, um, kind of the, the glacial lakes region of the world. Lots lots of natural lakes. Um, great great territory, great area for us in the real estate business. Uh, and then I, on, on the fishery side, we we do private lake and pond management from South Dakota, Minnesota down to uh, Southeast Texas. Got an office in Kansas with a couple guys working, and uh, yeah, we're we're we do quite a bit and from design and building to managing, resurrecting, rejuvenating. Yeah, all kinds of stuff. Awesome. We're working on. I didn't know you had. So you have an. You live in South Dakota, but you have an office in Kansas. Right. Yep. Neat. All right. Well, we're we're definitely going to dive into that. But let's set up uh, the story a little bit and tell uh, people a little bit about you. So. You grew up in the short grass prairies of Colorado where there's hardly any water. I'm picturing uh, golden fields of uh, hay and a lot of uh, pronghorn running around, and but not much water. <laughs> Mule deer, pronghorn, white hills in the river valleys, and, oh. and yeah, and sagebrush. Just one little river. I, I called it a river. That's kind of funny nowadays. But um, our hometown had a little river, and there was a couple farm ponds and surrounding lands that the guys had. But otherwise, it was, it was pretty dry. Um but yeah, always, always attracted to it. Always spend time, you know, riding the bike down to the river and fishing, and and uh, yeah, that just kind of parlayed into a career in the field and and still going. Well, I had a similar uh, lifestyle when I grew up in uh, southern Wisconsin, so it didn't look like Colorado by any means. But uh, um, as we were saying on the first attempt to record, I, I used to tie a fishing pole to the handlebars of my bike and I would ride that uh, bike with my buddies about three miles and we'd get to this uh, creek called Spring Creek and um, they would stock it with trout and we'd get out there in the spring in May around the opener probably as I recall and uh, there'd be trout in that pond or in the in the holes uh, wherever there was cooler water and we'd have a good time but we we mainly chased bass and bluegills Sometimes if you went north, you get more perch. You might get some northern downbeat by me. But in your ponds, are, are they bass and bluegill type perch type things, or are they trout out there? Uh, bass and bluegill mainly, but the, there was one public, um, kind of a little bit bigger pond that the state managed, and they would stock trout in there every year. Yeah. Um, and then they'd actually stock trout in the river, too, um, in the springtime. Well, we used to enjoy catching whatever we could, and I don't know that we targeted any species, but... Uh, the trout for us were a bonus. Um, I'm guessing they were brook because uh, of the slower, colder, or uh, warmer um, uh, creeks. But if you get onto the coulee country of western Wisconsin, southwestern Wisconsin, now you're getting into some you know, nice spring-fed creeks. And we'd head over there for the opener and, and catch some rainbows every now and then. Uh, brook trout, I don't know all my trout, but um, we always had a good time. But Man, having a pond, I tell you what, any any guy that owns land, I think, pictures a pond. They just do. <laughs> they do. So those things are magic. Yeah. Um, if you don't have one, you want to build one. Exactly. <laughs> so you're from academia as well. So you were a professor and I want you to tell us about your degree and kind of how you how you spend a few years in the academic world. Yeah. So I, I went to uh, Colorado State for my bachelor's and, and went to studied lakes, high elevation reservoirs, uh, and wanted to do more lake work. So I went to University of Illinois and then worked on Lake Michigan for my master's degree. And then uh, finished that up and went to South Dakota State University for my PhD and worked on Missouri River reservoirs, you know, walleye and sauger. And, and uh, yeah, and I ended I was fortunate enough to land an academic job at that institution um, and taught for 13 years. And then the department kind of changed directions. I looked at that as an opportunity to, I was either going to change my research, which I didn't want to do, or take it a different direction. So we were doing a lot of fish habitat research at the time and kind of took that idea and spun off this company to do pond and lake management with a focus on fish habitat work and did that about 
four or five years ago and it's just uh it's it's just going strong i'm truly blessed and very lucky i made that move i didn't know that you were a doctor so this is dr brian i should have uh i should have done that a little differently dr brian impressive (laughs) so when you when you were coming out of high school i always wonder about this because i mean for me you know, I went to wildlife management. I went to UW uh, Stevens Point, University of Wisconsin Stevens Point, and I was going to be a wildlife management. That's what I was interested in. Actually, I was do- uh-huh. doing a double major: wildlife management and urban. What was the title of this? Like urban landscape design, basically what it was. And looking back, uh-huh. I'm, I'm thinking, okay, well, that might not have been a bad combo because I live in an area where we're urban. Um, there's a lot of deer hunting around here and that combination might not be a bad combo, but I kind of just fell into it because I enjoyed hunting and I enjoyed fishing. I had no idea what I want to do. As a matter of fact, my dad had said, don't get a job where it's also your hobby because you will lose your passion for your hobby. It becomes a job. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So <laughs> yeah, you're agreeing with that. It's uh, I, when I've been working fish all summer, I don't want to go fishing when I get home. <laughs> don't want to come home smelling like fish after you uh, smelled like fish all day, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, so tell me about the academic portion. So you're a professor, you're sta- sitting in front of a bunch of millennials that are half asleep on their phone and you're trying to teach them biology or what's that like? <laughs> yeah. So I was, I kind of led the, the fish program, the fishery management program, I should say. So yeah, I was tenured. I had, um, taught several classes with millennials and they were, oh, they, it was interesting. They, they did well. Um, I think it's kind of one of the things of our department at the time and Stevens Point, same way. Most of that, pro, most of those programs are geared towards training students to become state, you know, state and federal agency fish biologists. And that's a very all planned and, you know, it's a very, oh, it kind of, it's it just been around for a while. So it's kind of easy to navigate that world. You kind of, you know, you're going to probably have to get a master's degree to get one of those jobs. Um, so, so at the undergraduate level, it was, you know, you're, you're training students and you're telling them, well, you need, if you want to stay in this field, you know, the most of the jobs are in act, are government agencies and you need a master's degree. So you need better grades and you need to think about grad school. And so I had a lot of students, I think, in their sophomore year that were, you know, they were doing okay in school, but not, not well enough to get into grad school. And I, you know, had some conversations with several kids and I'm like, you like hunting and fishing? And like, yep. I said, well, why don't you go do accounting or teaching or something else where you actually make some more money and actually, and, and then enjoy fishing and hunting as a, as a hobby and not try to do it as a job because the, the field of wildlife management, fish management is, you know, very, very math intensive, very model intensive. It's, you know, there's not a lot of, oh, not a lot of fun, I guess, um, for a lot of the stuff we do. So that was a kind of a natural fit for a lot of students, but we'd get a lot of, a lot of undergrads would come in and then, you know, a lot of them, we'd tell them just, you know, there's not a lot of jobs and needing a master's degree. So getting quite a few of them to transfer out of the program. I'm thinking <clears throat> of back to myself back in those days. And of course I was still at the level where I was taking entry level courses and whatnot. But if I was to like look back to myself and based on what you just had uh, said, um, boring, <laughs> kind of boring in a sense, uh, math intensive, I'm already yep. out right there. I can, hardly add up my uh, paycheck. Um, so that would not have been a good uh, fit, but I'm guessing a lot of guys, go, you know, they do, they do that career course, be it wildlife or fisheries or whatever, just because they flat out love it. Can the passion carry you through the degree and into the working world, do you think? What was that again? Sorry. Can the passion for the outdoors carry you through the academics and the requirements? And Yeah. Yep. For sure. I think the, yeah, if you got it, if you got to drive to do it, and you know, and it's and it's more, you know, the passion for the job, I guess, um, being outside, being able to work with fish, not actually fishing, but just you know, handling fish, sampling fish, um, managing fish. If that if that's your passion, that can get you through a lot of stuff for sure. Um, but if your passion is just angling, then yeah, there's a little bit of a you have to have a long conversation. <clears throat> I'm guessing it's like even like with our careers here at Whitetail Properties, you know, people say to me all the time, oh, you must have like a ton of land. You must hunt all the time. And young guys come to me and uh, they want a job with us and they say, you know, I love to hunt. I hunt all the time. I'm like, okay, well, are you ready to give that up? I mean, not completely, (laughs) 
but you can't be selling property when you're sitting in a tree stand. I mean, kind of, I mean, I work a little bit on my phone, but I probably screwed up a lot of shots and a lot of opportunities because I'm screwing around on my phone and it's tough to do business when you're not spending time doing business. Right. I suppose it's like that in your world. That's a great parallel. Um, yeah, and, and you, you picture driving around in a side-by-side, touring the big deer property and telling clients about, oh, you put the tree stand here and do a food plot here, and then you're in the tree stand and over the food plots, and yeah, it's just it's, it's, uh, it's a very, very, very small part of the job. You it's mentioned... Like oriented and yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, it's a very small part of the job. It's important because it shows that you're, you're doing what you say you're selling to yep. them, but... Um, you mentioned money and people don't want to talk about money, but I don't know, since you brought it up, I'm going to ask you. So I have a buddy that he's probably listening to this. As a matter of fact, I won't say his name, but he works for the state and he got into a lot of investing in land because I, my, I sense, and he's never told me this, but I'm sensing he's not uh, happy with his income, you know, working for the state. And I'm pretty sure he's got a bachelor's degree. I don't think he has, I think he has a master's, I should say. I don't think he has a PhD, but, um, so the money uh-huh. in that world is just not that great. No, it's not. It's uh, um, it's you got a field that's full of applicants. I mean, there's you do a job announcement and you might have 200 people applying for an entry level biologist job from all over the country with masters. You'll get PhD students applying, so you got an oversupply of you know a, a deep pool of candidates and very few jobs. So and you get and you're with a state or federal agency. So kind of combine those two things together. And, just there's not a lot of movement on the on the income front, but yeah, I mean, they're they're good jobs. They pay well. They're comfortable. Um, great benefits. Great security. Um, but yeah, the, the pay is not the greatest. That's the one thing I was going to ask you is the security. So is it is that it, if you work for the state, I guess there's always money there. So it's not like a contract job where you go from contract to contract. You just like how does it no, work? It's a, yeah, you're well. So there's a couple. You get there's seasonal jobs. You know, you get those as as you're a student over the summer or you start out when that you graduate, way. you might get a nine-month nine position. Um, but then, yeah, the, the, the jobs I'm talking about are permanent, full-time. You know, you're, you're a nine-to-five employee at the state or a federal agency. Yeah, well, my buddy, I think that's what he was sensing. And he started talking to, you know, agents like me that um, buy and sell land or just sell land and started doing the math. And so he started getting into that. And now he's actually buying and selling and talked to me about coming on as an agent and, but he said he had to actually get approval from the state, as I understand it, to have a side business, a sideline. And I don't know that he ever got that approval. Are you aware, are you aware of something like that? Like they won't let you go out on the side and have a second job? Yeah, it's, 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 it's possible. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of state guys have moonlight jobs. They're guides on the side They're they do different things, but Usually, just got to get permission from your supervisors, but yeah, it's definitely <clears throat> definitely something to think about. Um, so, I got to put a plug in the the I've got more than a couple um, state level biologists that are um, have come to me asking to come work for my company on the private side. Um, they they see the you know the pay is pretty good, uh, benefits think, but the the pay is pretty good, but the job itself is just amazing and. Yeah, I get some people coming to me on that side of things, you know, want to look at the private sector. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue. Well, let's talk about it. So what's the name of your company? Blue Wing Outdoors. Blue um, Wing Outdoors. All right. Well, yep. tell, tell tell me how Blue Wing Outdoors started. Well, we started, I, I, as a professor, I, I dealt with uh, fish habitat in large reservoirs and small reservoirs and, and just kind of serendipitously with, um, was hanging around with Bob Luck. And through my advisor back in all oh, back in the day, and he's in the private sector and one of the gurus. Um, and he introduced me to a gentleman in Texas that has become he's my oldest best client. He, he funded research for us, and he kind of changed the way I thought about the whole world. <laughs> um, he, he we did a, a school project at his property, and then that parlayed into a PhD level project, and then follow up master's project all around lake management and habitat. And, um, really launched the kind of the, the latter part of my career in terms of research and students and so anyhow I, i've been involved in that world for quite a while and then as the you know our department there had an unexpected the same guy that introduced me to bob lusk he passed away oh kind of unexpectedly he was leading the department pretty hard in one direction and then um, administration hired somebody and wanted to take our department 
in a different direction. Um, nothing bad, negative, just a different direction. So it became clear that, oh, well, you know, I could stick around and try to change directions in research or become, oh, not going to joke now. I know how professors become, oh, cr- you know, crab asses. Yeah. <laughs> Put it mildly. Um, the department's changed, so the, our department changed, change happens, and so instead of staying around and trying to modify, I just took the company and the idea and, and spun off. And it took a couple of years of transitioning, but we we launched full-time in you know, 2020, right, at, right before the pandemic started. So, um, yeah, kind of crazy timing, but we just hit the gas and have been going pretty hey, hard. Hey, the world's falling that. apart. Let's start a business, huh? That's Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so... Well, go back to you. So, your this guy was kind of your mentor, would you say? Yeah, he was. How yeah. do you, how do you change your? He was your, my PhD uh, advisor, and and then he became department head, and um, and I was I've become a professor already, but yeah, he became department head, so he was kind of my boss and mentor. Yeah. Yep. How do you change your outlook on life? You said he changed the way you looked at life. What'd that mean? Oh, um, so he introduced me to a gentleman in Texas. I won't repeat his name, but he, uh, a very wealthy individual that funded some research we had. And up to that point, all my research had been funded by state and federal agencies and, and uh, kind of one system. But this this guy just, you know, he just operated differently. So, for example, he, you know, we were doing, we, we did two years of pilot work with a PhD project, just studying everything we could about the lake. Um, we had bass diets, intensive diets. We had telemetry. We had individually marked fish. We were marking and recapturing, tracking crayfish, um, habitat, you, know, you name it. And, and the long story short was we had a lake that was had pretty good prey population, and the bass in there were doing just kind of fair to moderate. They weren't they weren't growing. They weren't doing. They weren't as healthy as they should have been. Um, so after a couple of years of looking at it, the last thing to you know, the last kind of straw was like, well, we think we just need more habitat. So we said, okay, um, we need to, need to enhance habitat. So uh, kind of a long story, but at the time, you know, people talked about the types of habitat and, and what to do, but there wasn't a lot of talk on how much habitat you needed. So I'd come up with some plans and I, I, I presented them to the gentleman funding the project and said, okay, is this going to be enough? And then that floored me. So I just stopped and I went back to my office and oh, literally two or three months pouring through the literature. It was a really fun time in my life trying to look for the answer. And long story short is we didn't have the answer to that. There'd been a lot of, oh, I guess in science, it was kind of mired in the attraction versus production debate was kind of what most of the fish habitat research. So they said, well, put habitat out, you're going to have fish on it already, but you know, you're just attracting more fish to an area, but is that really increasing the productivity of the lake? So we said, well, yeah, it, it, we know that habitat increases productivity, so it's just a matter of how much habitat. So that took us a couple months of doing that, talking to, actually it was a pheasant biologist that kind of gave me the last idea. And we proposed, you know, some quantitative numbers, you know, again, the math stuff. Um, we said, we think you need about 20% of your lake to be in high quality habitat to actually improve population, increase, improve productivity in, in our terms of growth. So what we're looking at. I was always thinking, so, just go out there and put some brush piles on the ice and let them sink in the spring, and simple as that. Yeah, that's the start. So then just a matter of how many brush piles you need. Um, if it's one acre lake, you probably need, you know, one acre normally shaped kind of roundish lake, you probably need about 40 or 50 brush piles to, you know, get it going. That's quite a bit for one um, acre. Yeah, it, it, it turns out it was a lot more habitat than most people have done. And we had, we did that to his lake, and, and it was instantaneous. We got um, instant response. The population just exploded. Um, everything. And we had another master student follow up after habitat implementation. Yeah, it was it was a pretty big success. We had some other factors. The vegetation came back in there, so the, you know, other factors were at play. But really, we had a pretty strong response from the fishery. And so we've taken that, kind of repeated that same project in several other lakes, and then we've taken that that process. Um, and turn it into a business and, and you know, in, in shaping the way that we manage fisheries, um, you know, in terms of getting that habitat, we call it the habitat infrastructure, build the infrastructure, and then you build the fishery on top of that. Is there a parallelism between, so the uh, uh, land management and fisheries management, and where I'm going with this is there's a guy, um, Jeff Sturgis, everybody's heard of Jeff, and Jeff coined this phrase, I've never heard anybody else say it, uh, rabbitat. And if Jeff, if you're listening to this, he probably isn't, but Jeff, if you are, I thought that was really key. And 
I think what Jeff is saying is like, okay, so if you build habitat starting, you know, with rabbits, they, they, you take these basically pallets, I think, and cover them with brush and the rabbits come in and then that area kind of gets a little weedy and it expend, it st- extends to pheasant habitat with rabbit ha- habitat. And then you got a soft edge and the deer like soft edge and that makes better deer habitat. So it's kind of like a chain reaction starting from the lowest end of the chain. Is that kind of how it is with brush piles and your acre pond? Very similar. Yeah. And the wildlife guys, you know, there's you know, it's wildlife and fisheries are the departments, right? That's what Stephen's point is. That's what SCSU was. So wildlife professors and fish professors are in the same department doing the same thing. So there's a lot of overlap. But but yeah, I think the wildlife guys, I had to give them lots of credit. They, they've been studying habitat for years. Uh, you know, the, all the deer research projects where, you know, they go put some collars on deer and then they go measure 50 things about the habitat and try to correlate it all together. And that's just a common aspect of wildlife studies. And then the fish world, it was, uh, we studied diets, we studied recruitment, survival, but habitat's just never been a big part of what we're doing. So mm. that was, uh, I would say we were quite a bit, quite a bit behind the wildlife guys in terms of fish habitat or in terms of habitat research. So when did this turn into a business? At what point did you decide, you know, I'm going to break away from academia and I'm going to make this into a business? Well, it just, uh, you know, starting in 2017, 18, um, that's when it, we just started doing it. Like, well, you know, there's this private sector out there and I think they, they might want what we're selling and what we're doing. So let's, let's try to make a go of it. And that kind of started it. And, and through the years, we modified what we do and how we do it and um, coming up with systems and processes and procedures and yeah, it's kind of kind of growing. So, what's your staff look like? Uh, I've got two full-time guys, um, fish biologists, and one's master's trained, one's bachelor's trained, and then we have a all about a half-time um, administrative office person that handles invoicing and communication with clients on report writing and whatnot. Um, myself, and then this year we're probably going to hire another full-time person for up north. And then uh, we also had a seasonal person down south. We're going to do a seasonal person again down there. And yeah, and just uh, kind of incremental growth. I'm looking at your website. It looks fantastic. Just going through oh, thanks. it. thanks. Yeah, it looks really impressive. All right, well, let's get into it. So somewhere out there, I know one, I, I got, no, I got one listener of my three that, you know, regularly listen, that is about to build a pond. <laughs> so yep. Nick, this is for you. I want to ask some questions. So what's it cost to build a pond? How do I do it? How do you do it? I should say. That's a great question. And it's hard. It's going to be hard to generalize this because there's so many ways to do it. So I'm going to kind of, I'm going to talk about generic ponds and easy. Just like situation. a realtor. It um, depends, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Says, so most ponds, I said the easiest ones are you got to draw with some sort of watershed. Um, either there's a tiny Creek or maybe just a dry wash that only gets rain after a big rainfall. You're going to impound that and just capture the water. So you go up into a draw, it's got to be the right spot in the draw, and that's based on precipitation. So, you know, you want to have the right size lake for the draw. You don't want to have too big of a lake, in a, you know, too far up in the watershed, or it's never going to fill, uh, run into that. Or you don't want to have a lake that's too far down and too small, then you're just going to be constantly turning over water and flushing. Uh, that's no good for fish. So having the right size lake for where you're at in the watershed is really important. And there, and this is where we work with local dirt guys. We've got some folks in Texas, Kansas, Oklahoma. Now we're working in Iowa, South Dakota. We're building about um, three lakes right now, four lakes actually, um, various stages right now. And so we try to get together with a local dirt person that knows the soil, knows, has built lakes in the area before. And really, they, they for them, we want to, they got to answer the question, how big a lake can we put here? And what's the dirt look like to build a clay, clay core of the dam? So, so assuming you got... Uh, good dirt at the site and we'll say you're going to build a normal one acre impounded pond um, you're going to have a oh, good corrugated plastic um, or PVC um, drain pipe with a emergency spillway going around one side of the dam kind of common element to pond uh, so yeah doing the dirt work if you just if you just want to impound the, the just impound the water I'm guessing you're probably going to spend 50 to Fifty to seventy thousand dollars just on dirt work to get that done, to get those pieces in place for one um, acre. For one acre, yep. I generally think of an acre about the size of a football field, just for a visual. Am I about right? I think so. Roughly. Now that you, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a pretty sizable pond, actually, an acre. Yeah. Yep. 
acres it's it's pretty good size and you'll and we can do a lot for one acre pond so that's kind of the basic dirt work and then where we come in is we you know we say okay we want the pond dug here and then we'll come in and say um and this is before even the dirt's dug it's we say we want to have a fishing pond so if you're going to put the dam here we got this point here and this bay here we want the dirt person to accentuate those features so there's a creek channel coming through. We, we might dig it deeper in spots. We might dig a channel up to a spawning cove. Um, we might take a point that's kind of sticking out. We might make it bigger, deeper, and steeper. Uh, take some of the natural contours of the lake and, and accentuate them. And, and then, so we we kind of get it. We kind of get a. We we leave the dirt guy with the plan. Like here's what we want. And then we say, well, call us when you're 95% done. Then we come back in with the owner and we, the dirt guy. And we all walk the pond and. And then by that point, you can see, you know, what's working, what's not, um, what, you know, what else can we add to it? You know, usually it's more of the dirt guy in there and, and uh, kind of finish things up, get the structure of the pond, um, the bottom contours, everything done. And then we'll come in beforehand and put habitat out. Um, and we take, when we do habitat, we do whatever's available. Um, kind of our biggest, best pond down in Texas, we did a 10 acre lake that had way north of 100 it had probably close to two hundred thousand dollars worth of just physical pieces of habitat in it um just for large on bass so but we take rocks we take trees we take brush and we, we kind of build a core of artificial habitat and we put all these other elements in it um, and we call them fish cities so we take a fish city design and <clears throat> whatever elements whatever pieces and parts are in there and then we just replicate that um, as many times as needed around the pond so you know, like a one acre pond you might need two or three fish cities to bring yourself up to 20 percent um a 10 acre lake we did i think close to gosh that one had a lot of shallow water we were up close to 20 fish cities with some corridors in between them um but that's a different different type of lake but anyhow back to simple lake so simple lake you want two or three fish cities worth of habitat um and let's see what other elements um really really important this Always kind of hurts my feelings. It took me a couple of years to figure this out in the private sector, but probably the most important thing to put on a pond, fishing, swimming, whatever, is a dock. You put a dock on a piece of water and it's just like a magnet. Everybody goes to it. Everybody goes out on it. They fish from it. They swim from it. They sit on it. They drink wine from it. They, they yeah. do whatever on it. Um, That's an understatement. Really, really enhances the lake. And if you if you got a lake without one, it's just it's, it's like a hole. Always, <laughs> it's, yeah, you're just fighting the bank. And um, yeah. so anyhow, we always try to build it. We'll we'll excavate a site where the where the where the boat dock will go, fishing dock. Will go. I have been talking about the acres.com software now for a while. There are new partners here at the American Landman podcast, and this has really become an integral part of my business as a land specialist. And another feature that I really enjoy is the soil maps, especially if I'm dealing with these small hobby farms all the way up to large ranches and production farms so that I can really understand the value of the property and the soil maps allow me to map a property telling me the types of soil and they have over 20,000 soil types that are built into the software. It'll give me the total acreage, the percentage of the field that that soil type uh, compo is composed of or that soil is composed of. And then it'll also give me the NCCPI index, which basically is a score from zero to 100, 100 being the best soil, zero, zero being the worst, and how this farm performs. And what that does is if I have farms around in the area and I can map them and I can see what they sold for, well, if the farm I'm selling has a really high NCCPI index, well, then it's worth more money. So if you're a landowner or you're a land buyer or you're a land investor, you might want to check out this software, dig into it. You can use the basic version or you can use the version I use, which is the one year subscription for about $300. And there's even an enterprise higher level. But I tell you guys, once you get into this, you're just going to geek out on it. You're going to dive deep into these uh, different types of information uh, maps that you can do and you're really going to enjoy it. Check them out acres.com and when you give them a call for your free demo tell them neil hogger american landman sent you and they're going to take real good care of you check it out acres.com just to make some comments on that so just this weekend i just returned back from vacation which is why i didn't have an episode last week and uh mm -hmm. we went on vacation but on a lake and uh we ended up making an offer and getting accepted on a um on a on a cabin and i gotta tell you oh. Yeah, yeah. Here, I get I get one of these. 
That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Dream come true. And that'll, I might actually do a whole episode just about this experience because it's been kind of a roller coaster. But anyways, but your comment about the lake, uh, lake and a dock. We pulled in the driveway. Beautiful home. Wife walked right past the house, right out to the end of the dock. And she stood there. And I actually have a photo. I took it from the bushes and I have like the leaves in front of her. She didn't see me. I got a photo because I wanted to, I wanted to record that moment, the first moment. And that was the first thing she did, Brian, is she walked out <laughs> on that. And I tell you, when you know, when we sell properties, we talk about this all the time. That first, you know, 10, 15 second wow factor. If you could create a wow factor and I in marketing, I, I call it make, make a magic moment. If you can create a yep. magic moment then you got them because yeah, they may like to fish. They might like to swim, but they picture themselves sitting on that dock, having a glass of wine, watching the sun go down. I mean, is it, is that, cause I say this, I can picture this in my mind. There's, you know, there's a big end dock and a, and a bench and you sit out there at the end of the night and, and watch the lake. So yeah, sorry to interrupt you, but can not agree no, more? They're amazing. I was going we just sold the property. Um, it had a beautiful lake, a good fishing lake, one of the few lakes that has natural walleye recruitment, um, kind of rarity in the small pond and lake world. And we got to talking about a dock, and, and he loved the idea. And he said, oh, I wish I had one. And he went and bought a dock just for us to take pictures and sell it. <laughs> he knew how important that'd be for sellers to come yeah. stand on and look at. So, yeah. I want to important. go back to the, the soil. So, like, all right, so I have this cabin. I talk about a lot in my hunting farm, Indian Creek. And, um, I got this beautiful two, about three acre field right out in front of it. Um, but it's not in a watershed. There's water within hundred feet or 200 feet of where I would uh, put a pond, but it's all leading away from the pond area. It wouldn't be coming towards it. And the soil tends to be a little sandier up there, I think. Um, so could I build a pond there? Anything's possible. Um, now you're starting to talk about specialized ponds. Um, you're probably being looking at an excavated pond, so you dig a hole, and that's the most expensive way to, to get water. You got every every scoop full of dirt equals one scoop full of water is the way to think about it. So lots and lots of scoops get lots, you know, a little bit of water. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's doable. You can you can excavate it out, build a levee around it, and if you got sandy soil, you probably put a pot on it. Um, and we we got a pond in Kansas we're working on that is one of the aspects for it um but yeah it's 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 doable but it's probably i'm just thinking of where your property is in wisconsin my guess is you got a, a natural draw somewhere else on the property that make a more suitable spot to build a pond now mine might be the best spot for the pond because you got to think of the end of mine but, on my farm yeah there's so it's 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 very doable, but it's gonna be more expensive, and you know, it's gonna take a lot more money to get the same amount of water as it would just pounding up a you know a little natural draw. I do have an area in my back uh, forty that's a seven acre field, and it slopes down to a tamarack swamp. That in the spring, that's the that's where all the runoffs going through, and it's always kind of cool, damp. It's got this moss on the ground and tamaracks growing, and you probably know what those are. Um, that would be a fantastic yep. spot because it would get the drainage for sure. But I'd be worried about how do I get the DNR to allow me to destroy a tamarack swamp? <laughs> That'd be another problem, huh? Well, it's, it's, it's a challenge. I'll put it that way. Every state is different. And shouldn't say every state. Every Corps of Engineers district is different. Um, it depends on who, which which district you're in, who's in charge of that district. Um, so that's the first place you start on what, are, what is or what isn't a wetland. Um, and what's an isolated wetland, what's connected, what's not, you know, is this part of an EPA layer? Uh, lots of different definitions I've seen. Um, and, and so the Corps of Engineers starts it, but the states actually interpret it. So you got to look at both of those levels. Um, I'm not sure what Wisconsin's like. I don't, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but, but I do know, so the couple, not to get sidetracked, Supreme Court decision about the isolated wetlands that, that made our life a little bit easier. Um, but where you're at, that might be a non-isolated wetland. It just depends on how big the swamp is and what it's like. It's a long But anyhow, so this is a long way of saying and rambling that um, I don't know all the specifics. I know each state's different, yeah. but that's where good pond dirt guy comes in. But that's why we always try to find a local, um, somebody that knows what the state regulations are and can go. And we can help them with the federal regulations. State regulations tend to be a little more you know, nebulous at times. Yeah. Um, it's always so good. Yeah. It's always good advice. Our disclaimers: check with your DNR. Just call your local yeah. office, right? Don't just start digging. 
because they may tell you, yeah, that hole looks really great. Now I'll put it back. <laughs> yep. And I think they will actually, if you, if you don't. So, all right. So you're building a, a, a one acre pond and you dig a hole and it's draining. There's a watershed that drains into it and it's filling. Um, you're about 50 to 70,000 bucks just to get the hole in there. If you have to start adding pond liners and whatnot, it's going to start going up. So can you keep talking financially in the building aspect? Yep. So 50 to 75,000 plus another, call it 25,000 of extra dirt work and habitat infrastructure you want to put in before you fill it. So, you know, upwards of a hundred thousand dollars, you know, for a good easy one acre pond. Um, so if you get beyond that, you know, doing a, uh, we just priced up putting a liner in a half acre pond and it came out to sell anywhere from 50 to $65,000 just for the materials. Um, so one acre pond kind of double that. And then if you got that, you, you know, like your, like your sandy, your spot where you don't have anything running into it, you need a well or something to fill it. Um, that's another 10 to 20, $30,000, depending on how deep they need to go, um, how big a pump they put in. But yeah, um, it, it can, it can add up in this part of the world. Now you're, you're lucky over there. You don't need as much watershed to build a pond, but, um, still need, still need something. My neighbor built a pond. Um, his is probably quarter acre. It's got an aerator uh-huh. in it. He's got like riprap all around the hole. He just basically built a hole. And then he, um, did, he did a liner and it's filled up. And I remember being real mucky and starting to clean or clean up. I can see it every time I drive by it, but I don't know something about like a pond liner just makes it feel too artificial for me. It feels like a fountain, you know, like a, a wading pool or something, but tell me about liners and versus like a natural the soil is going to hold the water. It's already got a heavy clay base or whatever. Yep. Well, even so, that's a good point. So every every reservoir built is technically man-made and artificial, um, but some have been around forever and they're going to be around forever. So just kind of a that's nebulous in there. But so a, a pond liner is it, it's it's rubberized. It's waterproof. It doesn't leak. It's, you got to put a you got to weld the seams. You got to sometimes you got to put layers underneath them, um, geotextile fabric underneath them to as a layer, then put the liner on top. You got to put the liner in. You got to have a crew come in and do it. It takes some doing to anchor them in properly. And once they're all anchored in, then you need to come and put a you know good six to twelve inches of soil on top of it in areas. Um, so you have dirt on top of the liner, and then yeah. It's, so you get to that point, it's not as artificial but yeah you're still yeah it's still kind of an artificial lake does it fill in with silt a little bit after a few years and then aquatic vegetation starts growing in the silt and you don't really know that there's a liner there yeah well we when we do them we, we bring dirt in on top of them so most of it's covered up by the time we're done with it okay and we want vegetation and you know bugs all that good stuff right away how long are those liners going to last is it like a 50-year warranty and then it's going to spring a leak and my pond's going to uh, disappear i, I want to say don't me, but I want to say 15 to 20 years is a warranty, but I've, you know, I've seen some that have been around for 40 years. Yeah. Um, Interesting. All right. So we're easy hundred grand into it at one acre. Yeah. Work, and that's work, work and materials. Yep. Okay. Yep. So let's talk about fish. Yeah. The fun part. The fun part. <laughs> so tell um, me. So fisheries management, is, it's, it's kind of all about we always talk to clients and say, what, you know, what do you envision fishing out here? Most of the time we get either, you know, we got guys that just want, Kids fishing, but they want to be able to catch a few big fish. That's a very common thing. But kids fishing, they want high catch rates of quality size fish. Um, and then some guys say, well, I want, you know, I want to, I want to catch a big bass. You know, for us up here, it's an eight pound bass. So that would be huge. Um, but they say, well, I, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not a trophy guy, but talk to them when they are a trophy guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we kind of have three levels of management. Um, first of all, kids fishing. So it's a very diverse fishery. We, we tend to select. Um, we we do things like we do smallmouth bass and largemouth bass together. Get two top predators, bluegill, yellow perch together, two prey sources, and fishing fish. You know, fishing fish. Um, so you have four different fish you can catch. Um, we're really big on. We do a lot of uh, feed train fish, feed train bass, and then bluegill feed train themselves. Um, took me a few years, but now I, I love fish feeders. They're like an aquatic food plot for us. Um, fish go to them when they need them, and when they don't, they go collect wild stuff. Um, so we do a lot with that, and that gets fish growing really well. I always um, wondered about that. If you if you have pellets, you go, and you yep. spit it out there, and they come up, and they go crazy. Do they, they don't get dependent on it. They will kind of eat crustaceans and invertebrates and whatever, and the pellets. Uh, it depends. Some fish are they never leave. 
they're always there. Um, but most fish, from what I've seen, kind of come and go um, away from it. When you got plenty of, say, a largemouth bass, um, you got plenty of food available in the lake, they'll, they'll go eat bluegill because they're still predators. And they'll, you know, they might have 25% of their diet that's just pellets. And then different other times of the year when there's not a lot of bluegill, that'll shift and they'll do more pellets. So they kind of come and go depending on the whole availability of other food. It really allows you to capture, to allow more fish and to get them bigger as, as you know and then you would in a normal pond it increases the carrying capacity mm-hmm. when you're stocking these fish are you bringing them in as like fry or are you bringing in adult fish we do um we do both um so one of our management scenarios is trophy bass that's a whole different category um there we're, we're buying bass you know directly out we're buying five pound bass out of florida to be stocked in female only lakes in you know eastern texas uh, so sometimes we do adult bass. We, we do a lot of that around here to kind of kickstart things, and then uh, and then we combine that with stocking penguins. So we we do a mix of both, depending on you know the lake's needs, the client's needs, and and uh, yeah, what's what's the best solution? Is there is this world of stocking ponds kind of like those guys that go to the high fenced operations and shoot a two hundred forty inch whitetail and put it on their wall and brag about it? But come on, man, it's you killed it in a fence. <laughs> Is that the same thing with bass? Like, you know, you said eight pounders, like the booner of bass, let's say, or is it, I don't know, is that the booner of bass? Is that the same? Is there like the stigma related to that or no, not really? Oh, it's funny. So down in Texas, this comes up a lot because guys down there, I got one guy that just wants to break the world record and he'll throw money at any crazy idea. Um, <laughs> but I've, I've told him. He, Good client know, to have. There's some, well, there's, yeah, he's a great one. But, you know, there's some genetic lines of fish and there's there the hot stuff and the guy also raised deer and it, it, it's i don't want to get into too many details but anyhow finally got some got a hold of some growth aid of these fish and his fish were already growing faster than they were <laughs> mm. um what i think it comes down to is if, if you could genetically figure this out this would have been broken a long time ago um feed trained bass if you got a really hardcore feed trained bass even in texas they only get about nine or ten pounds they rarely if ever get over 10 pounds uh, they're just the maximum limit on how fast they can grow so so a truly trophy fish, which we consider, you know, 12, 13 pounds on up down in Texas, that's not going to get there on pellets. It's not going to get there from genetics of anything. It's going to be, it's going to be Florida genetics for sure, but it's all about management. It's about having maximized growth potential at of life of that fish's life, um, low stress, great water quality all year long, um, lots and lots and lots and lots of food, right habitat. All the pieces have to come together and they have to stay together for all of that fish's you know, seven, eight, nine years of their life um, to reach those maximum sizes. Sounds like growing deer. Well, so, the, okay, so the last thing is there's a lot. You, know, you got to have good management. But for deer, it's pretty easy because you're selecting antler size. So I tell folks, if you if we were selecting fish that had the biggest, say, anal fin, you know, that fin on the bottom of the yeah. uh, bottom of the fish, we could have we could have grown and selected, you know, fish that had twice as long as anal fins. You're just kind of selecting one feature of that fish to enhance. Um, same with buck deer. You're, you're selecting antler size and breeding for that. It's easier to breed for that one little thing. To get, to get total size, it's a mixture of early growth, middle growth, late growth survival, you know, you got to be aggressive and not too aggressive because you don't want to flame out too early. There's a whole bunch of other factors that are involved in there that you're all selecting for, um, and we don't have a clue what they all are yet, but we know there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of people, particularly down south, that are trying to breed, find the, you know, genetic pure lines to get the biggest, but I, all my experience says that that's hokum. Um, if you want big fish, they just have to be Florida genetics, or mostly Florida genetics, and So when you say stress, you mentioned stress. So would stress like up north here be that the ice? Because we had a cold, long, snowy winter, lake freezes over. That's going to be stress on the fish. That's going to inhibit their ability to grow, right? Say that again if you, I, I didn't catch the first part. So, up here in the north, we have a lot of snow and we had a lot of ice and a lot of cold. So yep. is that considered stress? Because you said keep the stress yeah. under control. That would be yeah, a stress. Yeah. So I'm never so going to grow lakes- that big big bass right right yeah florida any we've mixed that we we've, we've tried to bring half florida bass up north um we have permission a few years ago to try them out and they just they didn't survive well one lake they may have six feet might have survived until last year but but in general a northern bass usually kind of the starting about this time of year august and september they start laying down lipids 
So they'll, instead of getting body tissue and getting bigger, they lay down fat and they've been separated from the uh, so pure Florida bass. Genetically, they're actually they've been split out into subspecies and or maybe species now. I can't remember which, but um, there there are big differences between the Florida bass and the northern bass. Now we do a lot of work with hybrid bass, the, the F1 hybrid between the two, and they do really well quite a ways up north. So they tend to be you gotta get really spoil them to keep them happy. Uh, but we do that in a lot of lakes. But yeah, you get this far north and it's just pure northern bass. So that's what I'm saying. You know, getting an eight pound bass for us would be that's a true trophy. And getting a pond that had five to eight pounders would be you know, really, really nice. Pretty good, huh? Okay. Yeah. So I got my $100,000 pond all built. It's an acre in size. What's my investment to get a decent amount of fish in there? And are they going to spawn? So I only have to add so many. Uh, that's my first yep. question. And second, is there an issue with me going to the lake down the road and just catching some bluegills and bass and a couple northern, putting them in a bucket and sticking them in my own lake? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> so first question, the answer to your first question is, uh, this is the most realistic answer you'll get from a biologist, is when you stock fish, most of those fish are going to die. So I always tell folks when we're doing new stockings, we're going to stock for three years or until the populations take off. Um, but the first year, maybe in two years, we might not get much results. Uh, that's just the nature. So even if we do get results, most of those fish are going to die. So it takes a while to, to get them going. Um, so, yeah. So let's say we just did a oh, largemouth bass, bluegill combination. So one acre lake, we would stock oh, anywhere up to 100 fingerling bass to get them going. And those would be anywhere from 6 to $8 a piece. Um, and then bluegill densities, we do quite a bit higher than most agencies do. Um, we start off with 2,000 per acre, so we start off with 2,000 bluegill, and the price, the, the bluegill prices up north are pretty high, so they're going to be about a buck twenty to a buck fifty a piece um, for three to five inches. And we put those in hopefully in the springtime, and hopefully they start spawning. But we put enough in that we just, you know, we don't we don't worry about timing of it. Um, so that'd be the first year, and then you probably repeat that the second year, and maybe even the third year until things really take off. Um, can I ask you a question also, about? If you got I, the budget for it, we do some adult fishing with that too to kind of kickstart stuff. That's, that's some of our basic stocking programs. Okay, let me ask you a question about that. Uh-huh. The reason that they die is it because okay, when you when you make a new pond, you're kind of like you're, you, the pond is. I'm making this analogy. It's kind of like a soup, right? You got some carrots, and you got some beets in there, and some chicken, and you got some rice. It always tastes better next week after it's kind of sat there and flavors have mixed a little bit is a pond kind of like that so you got water you got habitat but you don't you just don't it hasn't that soup hasn't gotten flavorful yet is that analogy do you see where i'm going um i kind of think so i so there's another effect we call it the reservoir effect so the first 10 years of life after you build a lake or your pet that's when you got the most productivity in the system so we're kind of at the front edge of this the first stocking of fish is usually the best growth you're ever going to see so We've got a short window on the front end to really make things happen um, before we got to start culling bass or culling other fish or doing some sort of harvest to bring densities down. Um, so it's really kind of the almost the other way around. The best is up front. Um, and then through time, more things kind of get added and it just takes on different flavors. And But yeah, the, the best, I guess, would be the freshest. Um, in terms of mortality, fish have a unique... Um, mortality so they uh, pretty much every year kind of you got the same mortality pretty much every year after after you turn one year old so one to say 10 11 12 year old bass up in this part of the world have similar mortality rates um so you're gonna you have about you know 35 percent uh, mortality every year a little bit higher if you go down south and that rate applies pretty similarly across all sizes on all ages so you know humans other mammals we have high mortality when we're young and when we're old much in the middle, fish have similar mortality throughout their life. Um, so any size you stock, anytime you do that, you're going to have a little bit higher mortality of stock fish to begin with. So it's not, we've had some, some tagging studies where you, we get 50% survival on stocking a dense-sized bass um, after the first couple of years. So you just, the most of the fish you stock are just not going to make it, particularly young fish. But but that's okay. You don't need that many fish to sustain a lake. Um, carrying capacity is actually pretty low and reproductive output is really high. But if you just so, put if you just put twenty thousand bucks worth of fish in in the first year, you see them all belly up. Does that get people kind of nervous? Because they, oh yeah, well we're just going to need another fifteen thousand because the you know we expected this to happen. 
Um, I would think that that would be, that'd make me a little pucker factor if you, if you, if I don't mind saying. <laughs> yeah. Usually if you see them all belly up, then you got some other problem. You, you got a problem. Talking, figure out the water quality problem. But generally what happens, it's, it's not, so last year is a great example. Um, we had some of the, we set records for snowfall in some of the areas around here. So we had, and we had an extra three to four weeks on each side of winter. So we froze up in mid-November and we didn't open up until mid-April and we had a lot of snow in between. So we had very, very high incidence of winter kill. Um, not in the lakes I managed because I got diffuser systems in them, but every other lake had tons of winter kill. Some of the lakes hadn't had winter kill in 50 years that complete kill. So, but we stocked a lot of largemouth bass. Um, they had some great, some beautiful fish. They went in the fall. They were in wonderful condition. They were feeding. They were doing well. And all the one of those lakes I stocked those bass into, they all disappeared over the winter. Um, so you got something. Fish are surviving, doing really well. They're probably doing good in January, but come February, March, they just have a higher, higher, higher mortality than the other fish in the lake. So one bad winter wiped out the largemouth bass. Smallmouth bass did fine, but the largemouth bass died. So you have you have all these things going on within a year. So you may lose them in the spring, you may lose them in the winter, but some years are harsh, you're going to lose a lot. Some are mild, you're not going to lose many. Um, so you just have that type of thing going on. It's not just the, the fish all of a sudden die and swim up to the surface. Mm, yeah. Well, I, again, I'm going back to that soup analogy. Because I, I guess in my mind, what I was thinking is like when you got fresh water in there, you don't have all the little plankton and... I'm going back to my biology days, you know, zooplankton or whatever. There's always little teeny stuff in there that the small prey minnows feed on, which in the big, it creates that chain of feed all the way up to the big yep. predators. But yeah, yep. So I would think that a, a fresh new pond doesn't have that. They actually, it, it's re- zooplankton colonize new water remarkably. Really? Um, they come in on birds' feathers, on bugs, on all kinds of ways, but they, they get in there really, really fast. So they come in quick. Bugs are in there almost immediately to get water. And we'll start stocking lakes when they're about half full and are still filling. Um, yeah, they, they need time to mature. It takes a while to get the odonates and some of the other more advanced bugs in them, but zooplankton and things like that actually happen pretty quick. Um, so, yeah, you do need that. You do need that, too, but it happens relatively quickly okay. in the lake. Well, what about making this lake look natural? So I got my one acre pond, I got the fish in there and they're, they're living and they're doing okay. I'm losing a few here and there, but to me, like what a natural pond looks like, I got a little algae growing over here in the shallows and that gives away to some reeds or some type of grasses. And then obviously it gets deeper and, uh, you know, I, I could picture these, you know, state produced fishery brochures and it shows you the, the depth, you know, and how the habitat changes. How, how do you, how does that happen in a new pond or does it happen? Usually the, so native plants will come in, um, cattails are everywhere, cattail seeds or bazillions of them. Um, and water plants come in. If you're in a, if you're in a draw, there's probably a few of those seeds around anyway. Um, if not, we also do, um, fairly common. We'll do some native plant plantings. Um, we use pickerel weeds, um, some lilies, um, calla lilies and floating lilies um just another native plant that we can buy and actually go establish some some good native plant communities um so we can kickstart that program for folks or you can go wisconsin's got some great spots i think to go buy native plants um, get some of those yourself and throw them out and, and kind of get those colonies started but yeah there's a whole suite of native native plants that typically come in on their own but if you need some help we can for sure in the ways of, of planting you know founder called founder effects so you do two or three plants in one area, two or three in another, and just hope those seed beds kind of spread out. Yeah. They take off. Create that habitat. That's awesome. Yep. All right. Well, anything else we, we haven't gone over here. So we're into this, we're into this one acre pond for about 150,000 bucks. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to estimate could be more, can be less obviously, but what's that do to my property values in your opinion? It's so I've heard, uh, I've heard it as 30%. I've heard it as, um, it, I, from, what, from my experience, if you've got, um, you, you built a pond, and people know it's there, keeping track of stocking records is really important. And probably the best thing to do is, um, let's say you build a pond and you manage it for 10 years and you want to sell it. If you've got somebody coming in semi-regularly and electrofishing the you know, lake to get a sample of it, um, having that data provided is a really huge part of, of what goes on. And that, you know, it could add, um, it add 20, 30% 
to a property depending on the size. Uh, it, it, it can add quite a bit. Yeah, kind of like trail camera pictures that we and harvest pictures. We always tell people, you know, think about market. I know you're I know you're never gonna sell this place, but trust me, somebody's gonna sell this place someday. <laughs> so you're the same thing, huh? Electrofishing and all the data and Yep. Yeah. Yep. That, that makes sense. When you you know, I'm watching one of your videos. So guys, if you want to check this out, they, they've got a Blue Wing Outdoors has a, uh, a YouTube channel. I'm watching a video and you're electroshocking. How does that affect oh, yeah. those fish? They come bounce right back? Oh, they're it's incredible. So they they stun for about, oh, if the water's cold, they might be out for 90 seconds. In hot water, they might be out for 10 seconds. Um, they, they get stunned. We net them. We put them into the recirculating live well. And they'll be upright and swimming again within, you know, usually no more than a minute. No problem, we, huh? We stop, we weigh and measure and release them unharmed back at the lake and go about our business. Yeah. So how, how deep does my lake need to be? Uh, up in this part of the world, I tell people a minimum about 12 feet is kind of a good buffer to get you through winter. Um, are we talking Wisconsin up in the world? Well, I guess you're... Yep, Wisconsin. You, yeah, yeah, you're parallel Minnesota, to Minnesota, South Dakota, North Dakota, yeah, this part of the world. Uh, go down south and get away with a lot of shallower water. Yeah. You got me thinking, buddy. <laughs> Let me talk to my wife and I'll get back to that. Wait a second. I just bought a lake house. She's going to tell me you don't need a, <laughs> you don't need a pond stick to deer hunting. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that's awesome, man. Well, we're about an hour, so uh, we should probably wrap this up, but uh, do you want to give out uh, your contact information? So if anybody wants to get a hold of you, Brian and Katie, your wife is your partner in this business, right? Yeah. Yep. So yeah, our, our, our probably check out our website, um, bluewingoutdoors.com. Um, that has our contact information, phone numbers, emails. Um, check us out. We got an Instagram channel, BWO Fishery Science. YouTube is BWO Fishery Science. And same with Facebook. So yeah, multiple ways to get a hold of us. Um, phone number 605-690-3026. If you want to just call me, um, we can talk about ponds. And real quick, you're a Whitetail Properties Land Specialist. you got a hot property out there. So everybody's looking for a, a hot tip. What's out there? We have one 97-acre um, property in, I think it's Roberts County, up in northeast South Dakota. And this guy, he, it's it's in a cool part of the world. Um, it's up by the town of uh, New Ethington. Is it on the website right now? It's on the website. Okay, I'm um, looking. Is it under you or Katie, or are you guys both the same page? Uh, both of us. I think it's Roberts County, 94.3 acres. Um, oh yeah. 749,000. Really cool property. It's got, it's got great food plots, got great trees. It's in a great location close to the interstate. But for me, the coolest part of it is he has a, um, about a 10 acre lake, um, 12 acre lake that's been stocked with walleyes and crappies. So he's got a walleye fishery, crappie fishery, um, been going for a while, 12 acres. It's a good sized lake and it's a great, um, fishery from everything we've seen. Yeah, I'm watching the video flyover. It's got a lot going on. Got corn and there's some tree shelter belts. But what's cool about this lake is it's not a big pond. It's like a undulating, nice, you know, it's got a lot going on, a lot of edge and a lot of things going on. It looks pretty sizable too. Lakeside building yeah, site. Yep. Oh, let's check that out. Twelve acre lake, full of fish. Man. Well, lots of deer the it's a oh, it's a wintering spot for deer. You get two hundred to two hundred and fifty head of deer on it over the winter and really it's just a just a crazy property, just very close to town and what um, town is it near? Uh, New Effington. New Effington. This is in South Dakota. Like where yep. give me a ge geographical way up in the northeast corner. So uh be north of just it'd just be a couple miles south of the North Dakota border. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, map ID link right now. If you go to our website, guys, whitetailproperties.com, just go to that find an agent tab and type in Brian's uh, name, uh, G-R-A-E-B. And uh, yeah, I'm zooming out. Man, there's a lot of, well, this is near my my family, my wife's family's farm near Veblen, not too far away. Yeah. We were talking offline about this because there was a lot of potholes and a lot of water in that area. A lot of water. Yeah. I, I think Day County, I'm not sure if it's still this way, but um, when it flooded back in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was more water than land for oil. All this flooded? Yep. And I had talked about those, uh, you called it the uh, coolies? Is that what you called it? Coolies, yep. Yeah. You can kind of see the spine of coolies that goes south and west of, actually goes northwest to southeast past Veblen, and then in your area just south of New Effington, a lot of potholes. I've been out there. It's a cool area, definitely. Tons of ducks. Yep. And I mean, I hate to say this, but uh, I won't say who who told me this, but the farmers out there go 
goose stomping every spring. You know what that is? Do what? <laughs> That's what I said. You do what? Uh, they called it goose stomping. I'm like, what the hell is that? He says, no. there are so many geese in these potholes and ducks. We walk the edges and stomp on their nests because they clean out our, our fields. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Yep. I won't say who told me that. I said, you realize that people will come and pay you to, you know, shoot those geese that you're stomping on? I, I hope he wasn't serious, but I think he was. I hate to say it, but I think he was. Well, this it's is a good-looking property. Yeah, it's, it's a great property. Good-looking really property. Nice. All right, Brian. Well, hey, man, I appreciate you getting on here. If anyone wants to build a pond, now you know the guy. Give Katie and um, Brian a call. I appreciate you coming on to the show. Good time with Neil. All right, man. Get out there and sell something. Talk to you soon. All right. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation. You know, building a pond. I know my neighbor, Nick, who's also my partner in business. Uh, Nick is thinking about building a pond. And I don't know what it was. I always thought that, you know, a pond had to be this big, massive project. It's not that it's cheap, but you know, I always pictured that it had to be a big lake and I thought this is not attainable, but it sounds like for around 100, 150,000 bucks, you could get a nice pond. And when I was talking to Brian and Katie at our national sales meeting, they said, you know, a one acre pond is actually about 15 feet deep, 12 to 15 feet deep. And that's actually a pretty decent sized body of water. And when I thought about it, I'm like, you know, it's the size of a football field. Yeah, it is pretty good. So um, that might, you know, that might not be such a bad project, but the, I can tell you this, um, and Brian hit on it, you know, the quality of water and the experience and having a dock out on a property, uh, having a nice cabin or something that overlooks that water. I mean, who wouldn't want that? If you combine that with a, on a property that has some uh, some deer hunting, some turkey hunting, maybe you can hunt some ducks and do a little fishing in your pond, that is most definitely going to enhance the value and just generally the overall uh, experience, if you will, of uh, utilizing land. So. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Guys, if you're looking for a piece of property anywhere in the United States, I want you to give me a call because I've got brothers and sisters for Whitetail Properties Real Estate all over the United States. And I've been doing uh, a heck of a job referring a lot of you guys out to our agents in various states. I just recently linked up a buyer who had been looking forever uh, to a property, uh, to a listing uh, that was uh, done by Bryce Ford. I think Bryce's last name is Ford, but the agent in Maryland. And uh, he hooked up with this buyer, took him around to three different properties and he bought a property just like that. And the buyer told me, he says, I'd been looking forever and I, I just didn't think it was gonna happen until I got hooked up with you at the American Landman Podcast and you hooked me up with Bryce, we finally made it happen. So we can make it happen for you too. So give me a call. Um, I, I, if I don't know these guys, I know that they're cut from the same cloth as me. They are the most highly trained, most respectful. They're guys like Brian that have this extensive knowledge. They're not just a realtor, they're a land specialist. And all of us guys that here and gals at Whitetail Properties, there's such a depth of knowledge here. It's just unbelievable. And I don't think you're gonna find it anywhere else. So give me a call. And I'd like to make you next American Landman. And guys, if you haven't done it already, please leave me a, a, a review. It helps the algorithms, helps it, the word get spread about this uh, podcast. And lastly, follow me on my Facebook at Neil Hogger Land Specialist and Instagram. Hit that like, share button, make some comments, push this uh, podcast out to a bunch of people. I'd really appreciate it. And I'll thank you if I ever get to meet you. With that, I'm going to sign off. I'm Neil Hogger, and I'm a land specialist with Whitetail Properties Real Estate, and you've been listening to the American Landman Podcast. <laughs>